Deuteronomy 5 this morning. We went through what are typically considered the first two commands last week. Very briefly though, uh, since they are only three verses or so, we'll just read the first two commandments because for our review, we're going to hit what we missed last week at the end of the prohibition on making idols, which is important for us to grasp before we move on to the third command about taking the Lord's name in vain. So this is Deuteronomy 5. We'll start reading in verse 6, and we'll read through verse 10. Deuteronomy 5, 6. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So significantly, at the end of the prohibition on worshiping God through what we might call false realities, either through worshiping a God before Yahweh or worshiping God through idols or worshiping other gods other than the Lord through idols, At the end of all of this, which we saw last week is highly thematic, there is a warning. That warning is that God is a jealous God who visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. And we'll look at that third and fourth generation a little bit more deeply later on. Right now, just notice, though, that transgressing these commands is an act, it's an expression of hatred toward God's character. To worship any other God before the Lord or to worship through idols, whether it's false gods or the true God through an idol, the Lord seems to take that as an expression of hatred against him because see the connection? Don't do these things for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Those two commands are summed up the transgressors of those two commands are described as those who hate me. And the Lord says, I will not take that lightly. And so it is fitting then that before we get to the third command in verse 11, which is how to use the Lord's name or how not to use the Lord's name, it is fitting before we get there that the Lord would give us an expression of his own character. What is his character? His character is to show, to visit iniquity on the third and fourth generations of those who hate him, but to show steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and who keep my commandments. So the Lord gives us a little glimpse right there of his character, or we might even say his glory. You may remember when Moses asks for the Lord to show him his glory, the Lord does not give Moses a particular visible manifestation, he gives him words. These are the words that he gives him in order to show Moses God's own glory. 
So then, what is the third command? Verse 11. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. A name, especially for these people, but we, we get the same sense of it for ourselves. A name is identified with reputation and was the source of social currency. If you wanted to engage in business or in the community, you had to have a reputation that would allow you to do so. The Lord here is concerned for his reputation. You may remember in Romans 2.24, Paul accuses lawbreakers as being those who give the nations reason to blaspheme God's name. So following the commandments is quite important. Related to verse 10 then, showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me, which is those who promote my glory, who keep my reputation intact among the nations. Not only that, it is important to remember Israel's role in the world. You do not need to flip there, but I'm going to turn once again to Exodus 19. This is Israel's marching orders, Exodus 19, verse 5 and 6. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. Above all, as a holy nation and a kingdom of priests, Israel ought to be concerned for her God's glory. That should trump every other concern. That is the purpose for which God redeemed them, to be a kingdom of priests. Therefore, how God's name is used and how it is understood is of supreme importance. How they represent God is governed by God. And remember, if Israel cannot use idols to represent the Lord, what is left to represent the Lord in the world except God's people, those who are made in His image? So, how those people who represent the Lord use his name communicate a great deal about who the Lord is. There are three things we'll look at under this command. So uh, I have a handout for you again. There's a little chart in the front we'll look at in a little bit. Backside, we have the six commands that we have gone through and God willing might get through today. Number three, the Lord cannot be used to control others. Last week, we talked about idols being ways to control the Lord. Here, the prohibition is against invoking the Lord's name in order to control other people, not to control God. So, we could put it this way. The design of an idol is to somehow manipulate or control the God himself. The way the God's name was used was meant to be a way to control other people. Perhaps an analogy, I might, make, making an idol is sort of like me asking my parents to give me money, right? I make the idol and the goal is to get my parents to do something for me, the God to do something for me. 
this commandment prohibits me from telling my brother that my parents told him to give me his money. Does that make sense? So I go to my brother and I say, Mom and Dad say you have to give me your money. That's the idea behind the way the Lord's name is used. I use my parents' name in a poor way to either manipulate my brother or uh, to use my parents' authority to get my brother to do something rather than directly going to my parents. That's maybe the analogy that I could best come up with. So this, what this commandment does then is it tells Israel how they can and cannot use God's name as part of oaths or part of vows. They cannot call on God's name as though it is an empty thing. So there's, there's actually two different things here. There's the oath aspect, which is don't use God's name and not fear the Lord following through on the punishment for which you invoked his name. All oaths were taken like this. This is my pledge to you. As the Lord lives, I will do it. And the assumption is, if I don't do it, the Lord himself will take revenge of the situation. He, he will require of me what I said I ought to do. And he will punish me if I don't. This says, don't use God's name in an empty way. Don't be fearless of taking God's name in oath. The other thing is a vow. And a vow is a promise back to God, if you will do this for me, I will repay back to you this. So Israel is not to flippantly use God's name in vows or in oaths. Leviticus 19.12 might give us a little bit better handle on it. Leviticus 19.12 is another way to approach what this commandment, I think, is getting at. You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Additionally, God's name was attached to legal decisions and cases. We've already seen this in Deuteronomy 1.17. Moses appoints judges and say, your judgment is of the Lord. Judges are to take that responsibility seriously as well and cannot manipulate or lord over their defendants or any others in a poor way, giving a bad name to the Lord. So it cannot be used to control others. Number two, positively, the Lord is our helper. So while the Lord's name cannot be called on for vanity or emptily, it can be called on. So Psalm 50, verses 14 and 15, show us the proper way to use the Lord's name. Psalm 50, verses 14 and 15. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call on me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. So what we were saying just a minute ago about vows, this is how it worked. The calling on the name of the Lord often included a vow. It wasn't just a prayer, oh God, save me. 
It was often a prayer of, oh God, save me, and in return, I will do this to glorify you in front of all of these believers, uh, these, these in the congregation. So calling on the name of the Lord, part of a vow, can be a righteous and God-glorifying thing to do, but can also be done emptily, which is, oh Lord, you saved me from this, and I will do this in return, and then we just simply don't follow through on it. So uh, pay your vows to the Lord. So out of this command to not take the Lord's name in vain or emptily flow a whole bunch of commandments related to oaths, vows, legal decisions, and uh, a whole bunch of other things as well. The third thing we'll look at here very briefly, the Lord is present in only one place for worship. Now we talked with idols that idols were a way to bring the Lord or bring a God uh, to a specific location, which is if I want to engage with this God, I make an idol so that the God is present with me through this idol. Here what is going on is the flip side of that. Um, Idols try to localize God or a God, and here the concern is not to give anyone the false impression that God is present everywhere equally to bless. Let's go to Deuteronomy 5. Um, Actually, Deuteronomy 12. Deuteronomy 12. We'll start in verse 2. You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess served their gods. So all of those idolatrous locations throughout the land of Canaan, destroy them. On the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree, you shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their ashram with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. Now, is the objection in this text primarily against methodology or location? Verse 5, But you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. The way peoples worshipped their gods was related to location. So they could do things that Israel couldn't because they had multiple locations. But one of the things the Lord is doing here is restricting all of those other ways of worshipping by restricting where they can and cannot worship. And the Lord phrases that in Deuteronomy by saying where he will place his name. There is a location aspect that goes along with the way the Lord's name is used. So what this command is getting at is do not worship the Lord absolutely anywhere as if he is present everywhere equally to bless. He's not present everywhere equally to bless. There's one place he will put his name. Worship the Lord there and don't attach his name to all of these different locations. It's not acceptable. There's one place that will ultimately end up being acceptable. 
There's a lot more we could say about that, but we'll pause right there. If there's any questions related to it, we can deal with those. Otherwise, we'll move on. Thoughts or questions over that? Yes, so the, the OMG uh, sort of phraseology. Um, yes, that is a valid application of this commandment. And what I would do with that one is I would simply put it under the, the reason that phrase is used is to add punctuation to our own statements. It's to create effect in the people who hear it rather than being an expression of reverence or uh, any, anything like that. And what this command is limiting is that sort of thing as well. So don't use it flippantly, whether it's an oath or whether it's an exclamation for your own use. Uh, the Lord's name uh, is not to be manipulated or handled. Rather, the Lord's name and his reputation are to dictate how we respond to the Lord and other people. And so it's, it's the Lord's name is meant to direct us, but that's why it can't be misused. Great question. I, uh, if it is a modern uh, praise song, I'm afraid I can't speak to it. I don't know most of it. <laughs> yes, we are part of a new covenant. And so we are able to worship in spirit and truth. Uh, so Jesus decentralizes worship in the New Testament. Um, however, the one thing that I would still carry over from the Old Testament, the thing I would emphasize to carry over, is that um, Jesus is how the Father is worshipped. So the name of Jesus makes all the difference in our worship. So not just the, the vocalization of his name, that's part of it, uh, but the idea that Jesus is the place where we worship. We can't approach God through any other means. I would actually put more under here than under the issue of idolatry, uh, idol in particular. I would attach that to the Lord's name. Great question. Anything else? Okay. Verse... 12, verses 12 to 15, the Sabbath. Observe the Sabbath day. Deuteronomy 5.12. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy. I'm going to pause right there. Do we have any different translations than that? Sanctify. Who, who had sanctify? Roberta, thank you. What translation are you using? King James? Okay. We can note that outlier. We'll come back to that briefly. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. 
Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. Remember, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. There are a number of differences between the commandments in Exodus 20, which we're going to go to, so feel free to keep a finger here in Deuteronomy 5 and go to Exodus 20. There are a number of differences. One of the super obvious ones is the way the command ends, right? The Lord did not tell Moses, therefore the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. That's Moses' commentary on the command as he looks back on it over 40 years. If we were to go to Exodus 20, we'll notice some more differences. And as we go there, I want to point out that the previous two or three commandments, depending on how you count them, they prohibit theologically false ways of honoring God. This commandment uh, is a theologically positive way of honoring the Lord. Thematically, this commandment takes up the most space in Moses' teaching. So as I covered all of this ground in the past on a Wednesday, on Wednesday nights, not a Wednesday night, I included thematically under this commandment the last half of Exodus, all dealing with the tabernacle, and the entire book of Leviticus. The entire book of Leviticus and the last half of Exodus dealing with the tabernacle are all the ways in which Israel is supposed to worship the Lord. These are the ways it's ought, it ought to be done. This is the only one of the commands that tell Israel positively, what shall you do to honor the Lord? Not what you shall not do, but what you shall do. And it is worth noting that it is a commandment of how we use our time. Now going back to Exodus 20, in Deuteronomy 5, it says, you shall observe the Sabbath day. Exodus 20, verse 8, has that a little bit differently. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. So Israel is to keep or observe the seventh day. And what it means in Deuteronomy 5 to keep or observe the Sabbath day is partly explained and clarified, I think, by Exodus 20, verse 8. To keep is to guard the reality of the sanctity of the day in one's mind. So in my mind, that day has been made holy by the Lord. Exodus 20 Verses 9 through 11, so we just read verse 8, verses 9 through 11, explain how the Lord made that day holy and why Israel is to keep it holy. So back in Exodus chapter 20, verse 9 and following. 
Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. Why shall they not do any work? For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. The logic of the command is that the Lord did this work. You remember what the Lord did and imitate Him. You copy the Lord as a holy nation, holy kingdom of priests. Imitate the Lord. Now this is not primarily a command based on redemption. Last week... uh, we had the question asked, why does the Lord ground His commandments um, usually in redemption rather than in creation? Well, here it's the opposite. In Exodus, He grounds the command in creation. As people made in God's image, we ought to know the importance of enjoying the fruits of our labor and giving others space for the same. That's what is going on here, I think, in Exodus 20. In creation, the Lord does all His work and He sits back, as it were, and He enjoys what He's produced as He exercises lordship over it. Humanity is to do the same thing. You work for six days and on the seventh day, you take a step back and you enjoy what you have produced. You enjoy the fruits of your labor. Now, I suspect that one of the reasons so many of these commandments are jettisoned in our own day But there is still a strong semblance of the Sabbath, even in our own culture. We take two days off, generally, not just one, but always, almost, almost always at least one is offered. Likely, part of the reason that is still the case is because this is an ingrained, um, almost an instinctual reaction in humanity. It is a creation ordinance, not a ordinance first of redemption. So, Uh, Having said that, though, in Israel's day, this was entirely unheard of. There was no culture that had any regulation at all in regards to having a day in which all are to receive a break. And Israel is called at least to the bare minimum of what God has laid within creation. But she is to go beyond where common grace would lead the mind's logic. Another way to approach it is this. Even the world is able to understand that we are typically more productive when we have a day to recuperate. That's interwoven into the fabric of creation. Israel is called to go a little bit beyond that. Let's go back to Deuteronomy 5. And notice the difference of wording. Exodus 20 began with, Remember the Sabbath day. Deuteronomy 5 begins with observe the Sabbath day or keep the Sabbath day. The second, let's do it this way. There is a difference, I think, between those two things. Keep is partly clarified, I said, by remember. But keep 
goes beyond that a little bit as well, I think. Israel is to do more than simply recall to mind the fact that the day is different. They are called to actively make a distinction between six days and the one. Make an active distinction between them. This is the second part of the command. I asked earlier about different translations. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The King James has to sanctify it, which I think is a better reflection of the the verbiage of the Hebrew, to sanctify it. Both Exodus 28 and Deuteronomy 5 have the same phrase in the last half. Remember the Sabbath day to sanctify it. And this one is keep or observe the Sabbath day to sanctify it. Israel is not only to remember the Lord's work, she is to do an active work on day seven as well. And that is make the day different than all the other six days. So remembering God's work is part of it. Deuteronomy 5 also actually has the same thing. So if you will jump down to verse 15 of Deuteronomy 5, how is Israel to sanctify it? One, they do no work. Second, they shall remember that they were a slave in Egypt, and the Lord brought them out with a mighty hand. Therefore, keep the Sabbath. Now, what they are to remember on the seventh day is not creation, it is redemption. In Deuteronomy, that's the difference. So Exodus is creation, Deuteronomy is redemption. Now, how are they to make the day different from all of the others? Let's look at verses 13 to 14. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock. Notice there as well in the Exodus version, only the livestock are mentioned. Moses expands that. Not your ox, not your donkey, or your livestock. So he's, he's expanding that out. Exodus also mentioned the servants, but Moses elaborates on that a little bit as well. Uh, when he says, your sojourner who is in, within your gates, that your male and female, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. So Moses elaborates on the commandment here as he recalls it. So how are they to make this day different from the others? Six days you shall work. The Sabbath you shall keep as a Sabbath to Yahweh your God. Six days work is to be done in one's own interest. One day is to be done in the interest of the Lord. Verse 14, the last half of it anyway, explains the rest that is to be done by the head of the household and all of those who are within his house. Now to the little chart you have. Remember that the previous commands seem very general, but this one here seems to be addressed particularly to the household leader. Now, we have here all of those who live within that household complex, assuming the household leader is the firstborn of a family. He may have his parents living with him, but he will certainly have with him any of his children, 
likely any of his son's children, any of his daughters who are not married, possibly brothers and unmarried sisters. So right here are all of the family relationships. This does not include all of the livestock, the ox and the donkey, or the male or the female servants who would have all been considered forms of property. So this does not include property, but notice that there are people included in property uh, that are not here as well. All of them are to receive the proper rest on the Sabbath. Significantly here, they, the household, is to give rest to all of those under his charge. He is to rest, but he is to ensure that all of those under him are to rest as well. Verse 15, we mentioned this already, but we'll spend a few more minutes on it. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep or observe the Sabbath. They are to remember it now both because of God's creative work but also his redemptive work and they are to spend the day ruminating on God's saving work. That's why I come back to this. What does it look like to keep the Sabbath? It means you rest and you have everyone else in your household rest. It also means remember your salvation. Remember your status as slaves in a dark place and that the Lord brought you out from that darkness into his marvelous light. Spend the day remembering that, ruminating over it, and letting others do the same as well. Three brief principles here we'll look at. First, again, on this side, the other side of the sheet, the not chart side. The Lord created the world in Israel. Commemorate his work on one day out of seven. Fascinatingly, Israel is given many feast days, or what we might call many holy days within its calendar, right? We're, we're all aware of things like the Feast of the Booths, Feast of the Tabernacles, whatever, Feast of Unleavened Bread, Passover, a whole bunch of uh, feast days. The only day that was given capital punishment for infringement was the Sabbath. In fact, the first six commandments all receive capital punishment for their breach. The Sabbath was the most important day out of any day in Israel's life, and it came around once every seven days. Failure to observe the Sabbath was deadly. Second, the Lord insists all are to have an opportunity for fellowship with him and his people. And third, the Lord insists his people worship him through particular and holy means and at holy times. The Lord has not only given us the way we ought to worship, he's given us the time in which Israel was to worship. Very briefly, we'll look at some applications. This is the only command that seems to take an outward, a different outward appearance in the New Testament. The early Christians did not worship on the same day that the Jews did. They worshipped on the Lord's day. 
they set aside time to worship Jesus on Resurrection Day. This gives a great display of our resurrection hope. We still carry over the same heartbeat of the command on that day. We still remember the Lord's work in creation. Great example from this morning. And we still remember the Lord's day in, still remember the Lord's work in salvation. That's what we're to do every time we gather, every single Lord's day. The early church did not abandon the heartbeat of this commandment. They transferred the day. Second, the substance of the command lingers. First, this remains a creation ordinance no matter what covenant we're under. Exodus 20 still applies. Number two, the humanitarian emphasis that Deuteronomy gives the commandment is heightened in the New Testament, not diminished. For example, uh, Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath, therefore his servants, uh, his disciples can go through the grain fields and pluck grain to eat. It is expanding the humanitarian emphasis. Jesus heals on the Sabbath all over the place because he looks at Deuteronomy 5 and he sees a humanitarian emphasis behind this. You let all of the others rest. You let all of the others engage in the Lord's people as well. Give them life. Number three, the rest of the Lord's day takes on greater theological significance in light of Jesus' resurrection and our eventual hope. Number four, Jesus is worthy of the time and his work is worthy of our act of remembrance and proclamation. Now I think, here's, here's my tangent and more pointed application, I think we largely miss the benefit of this command because usually our attempts at it are half-hearted. We typically emphasize our rest on the Sabbath. Deuteronomy emphasizes the rest of the others. We typically emphasize a morning consecrated to the Lord. The Lord emphasizes a day consecrated to the Lord. I'm going to give a shameless plug here for the evening service, um, especially since I'm not the one who's leading it. I feel the freedom to do that in a new way. There is no greater way, I think, at least in my experience, there is no greater way to make the day feel like it is a Sabbath under the Lord than beginning and ending the day with worship, corporate worship in particular. It is very easy for us to think, I go to church in the morning and the rest of the day is mine. The Lord has the opposite mentality. The day is mine. I give it to you to worship me. That frame of mind is better carried along throughout the intervening hours when we come back to do the same thing in the evening. That sets the day apart. Not for us, though it is to our advantage, far beyond what we will ever give it credit for. It's not primarily for our advantage. It is for the display of God's glory in creation and redemption. That's what happens when we gather. So all of that to say, we benefit hugely, not just because our bodies have rest, 
It is a place for our souls to rest, a time for our souls to rest as well. And what that gives you throughout the week cannot be measured. In the same way, three to six hours of physical rest can be. I'll, I'll stop there. Other than saying that preaching and teaching emphasize, uh, what the text emphasizes is remembering what the Lord has done. And we often tend, uh, let me rephrase that. Evangelical preaching often emphasizes what we ought to do. The text emphasizes remembering what the Lord has done. Primarily, and out of that flow, what we ought to do. I'll stop there. And I have to ask for thoughts or questions or comments uh, over this commandment as well. This is my day of rest. I, yeah, so the, the lodge against the pastors, he, he needs a separate day of rest. And I think that that is important for his body and his mind. However, what in the world could be more energizing to me than to be with you and to speak with you about what the Lord has done. That is re-energizing to me. It may drain my body a little bit, and that needs to recuperate. But the rest of me is re-energized in the way I think the Lord intends for his people to be energized by keeping the Sabbath. So there is a physical element to it, but there's also a deep spiritual element to it. I get that today, which is why, by the way, um, pastors only need, I think, the one day to recuperate. Uh, it's to give the body uh, opportunity to re-energize, not, not the rest. Yeah. Yep. Which is a continuity from the old, old way of doing things in the old covenant, especially in exile. They would gather for synagogue and things like that on this day because it's to remember what the Lord has done. I, I don't take that to be a devil's advocate. That is a fair question. So the, if you didn't get to hear it, um, Paul disapproves of the way some of the early Christians observed days and seasons and years. The first thing I will say to that is those were primarily in reference to Jewish festal days, uh, not to the Sabbath day, which Paul seemed to observe as well when he went to the synagogue. The second thing is that the mentality in which the people who were doing those things were doing it was a works-based mentality, which is, I do this and I gain favor with the Lord. Uh, the mentality of the Sabbath is, I do this so that I can commune with the Lord, uh, which is an entirely different perspective. So um, though he warns against observing particular days in the same way he warns against circumcision, Paul himself seemed to uphold the Sabbath. Um, is a great model for us. Did they consider every day to be the Lord's day? Not in the same way. Um, the first day of the week was unique. Um, it was, yeah. I'll just, I'm not a historian there. I can't speak too much to it. Okay. All right. I think we can knock out the next one, verse 16, Deuteronomy 5, verse 16. 
honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you, another uh, mosaic insert, that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving to you. This is a most important text for parents, not because of what it commands their children, but because of what it expects and assumes of them. Of course, it speaks to children. All commandments do. But just as the Sabbath command was primarily aimed at the household leader and his responsibility to give all the others rest, this command, too, is aimed at the household leader. If you look at the chart again, what you will notice is that though there is a household leader, there were often uh, the patriarch, his father, and the matriarch, his mother, still living in the same complex. The difference is they have retired out, as it were, and likely were unable to continue to be the main economic provider in the household. And so who the authority for the household rested with was the one who was responsible for the household, which included the one who was responsible for taking care of their parents. So this command is aimed, I would argue, primarily at the household leader, and of course, through him, to it reaches all others as well. But what he is to do is honor the father and the mother, who we would call the patriarch and the matriarch of the family. Clearly, that's not going to always be the case, but it was often the case. This is the command to honor the voice of the gray hairs in the house. Three principles we'll look at here. The Lord who gave us life is worthy of honor, and that is reflected in how we respond to our own parents. We often express the application of this command as respecting your parents, which is fine, that is good, but it's vague, right? How many of us have struggled? How do I honor my parents who may not always be worthy of the honor? What it means is giving the same weight to the parents as you would to God, considering them to be worth the consideration, whether or not they are godly parents. They are not only worthy of respect, they are worthy of giving a certain amount of weight. I, uh, I thank the Lord that my dad is a godly man. My brother... My oldest brother, who moved onto the farm, is not. Even if my dad were not godly, my brother would do well to listen to the wisdom of my dad, who has 30 more years' experience running a farm operation than my brother has. Giving weight to that would serve him well, because common grace still takes people a long way, if they pay attention to it, if they pay attention to what the Lord has planted in them. It still takes them a long way. My brother would do well to listen to that. My brother has the added benefit, as I do, of listening to the godly wisdom of my dad's experience, whether or not he takes it, is on his shoulders, my dad is still there to offer it as it is, uh, as it's open for my brother. So it still means giving weight and honor by recognizing, first, that they were the Lord's means of giving us life. Um, 
And even if they are poor parents, we can still recognize, I live because they lived. And I am who I am because my parents are who they are. And even if they were poor parents and made mistakes, if the Lord has blessed me enough to recognize that fact, I may be who I am in reaction to my parents, which is still a blessing, uh, that I uh, have been able to glean from their mistakes, whether or not they've tried to teach me those lessons or not. So first, we reflect giving the Lord honor by giving honor to our parents. Number two, the Lord has assigned parents his role of instructor and guide for his children. We're not there, but the Shema is famous for that, right? Uh, talk of them when you lie down, when you rise up, when you walk in the way, put them on your doorposts, so on and so forth. Third, the Lord insists his people are to be perpetually holy. might seem odd to put the command of holiness under honoring parents, but this is the first command that starts looking at horizontal relationships. And what is the central command of Leviticus? But be holy, for the Lord your God is holy. And just for fun, here are the passages in Leviticus that command, be holy. Leviticus 11.44, Leviticus 19.2, Leviticus 27, Leviticus 20.26. The central command of Leviticus is, be holy, for I am holy. And what this command is doing is assuming or commanding parents perpetuate that holiness on through the generations. And it's teaching the children, pay attention to the way your parents are trying to instill your instill holiness and your need to pursue righteousness uh, as you listen to them. So if they are to remain long in the land, as the Lord holds out the promise for this command, listen to your parents who will teach you how to be holy so that you may live long in the land. And notice, the land is not the reward for obedience to the command. The land is already given to them. So the end of verse 16, that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you, that land is given as a grant before Israel obeys the command. If they are to hold on to the land, if they are to keep within their grasp what the Lord has given them, they must be faithful not only to this command, particularly to this command, uh, but to all commands which the parents ought to lead the children into. And so if we fail to take note and give weight to the experience of our parents and their persons, we have nothing to gain but everything to lose by, by casting off the weightiness of our parents. Questions or comments over over. Honoring parents. Very well. We are at time. God willing, I will see you next week for our last trip for the summer. Thanks.